Hello, welcome to the Aftermath. I'm your host, Chris, and I'm delighted to have you join me for this discussion of scriptures from the fourth week of Advent, Year C. As always, let's begin with the readings themselves. The first reading comes from the book of Micah, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Thus says the Lord, You, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too small to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient times. Therefore the Lord will give them up, until the time when she who is to give birth has born, and the rest of his kindred shall return to the children of Israel. He shall stand firm, and shepherd his flock by the strength of the Lord, in the majestic name of the Lord, his God. And they shall remain, for now his greatness shall reach to the ends of the earth. He shall be peace. The second reading comes from the letter to the Hebrews. Chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. Brothers and sisters, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. In holocausts and sin offerings you took no delight. Then I said, As is written of me in the scroll, Behold, I come to do your will, O God. First he says, Sacrifices and offerings holocausts and sin offerings you neither desired nor delighted in. These are offered second. By this will, we have been consecrated through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The Gospel this week comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 39 through 45. Mary set out and traveled to the hill country in haste, to a town of Judah, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the infant leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, cried out in a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how does this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For at the moment the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the infant in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed are you who believed that what was spoken to you by the Lord would be fulfilled. Okay, so... Uh, just starting with some initial thoughts here. Uh, here we are, uh, just days away from the coming of the Lord, and these readings really show it. When going through these readings, I got the sense that these three were matched together in order to give us as clear an assessment of the story as possible. There seems to be a clear what, so what, now what kind of structure to this week's scriptures as they're laid out. First, we hear about the what when the prophet Micah tells us that from Bethlehem will come the future ruler of Israel, the Christ. Next, in the so what, the author of the letter to the Hebrews explains why the Christ is coming, which is to take away sacrifices and offerings and replace them by coming to carry out God's will on earth. And then finally, 
in the now what, in the gospel, we see Elizabeth and her unborn child being filled with the Holy Spirit and joy. This same joy that we've been discussing throughout the season of Advent. So now is the time to be filled with that joy and prepare to celebrate the coming of the Lord, which is if you're listening to this in a couple of days. So let's take a look at the scriptures a little bit more closely and see if we can really maximize our celebration here. Uh, just starting with the first reading, which, as I said, comes from the book of Micah. I think this first reading is much more fruitful than it appears at first blush. Right away, we see this apparently clear reference to Bethlehem, the birthplace of Christ, a full eight centuries before he was born to Mary. With the benefit of millennia of hindsight and church tradition behind us, it might be tempting to fall back on a sort of self-satisfied reading of this text as a simple prophecy of the birth of Christ as laid out in the first verse, and then merely regard the rest as minor oratorical extensions of that line. After all, it would seem a little silly for the lector to read out only a, a single line for the first reading on such an important date on our church's calendar. So it seems intuitive that we should fill it out a little bit for the sake of a robust liturgy, even if the later verses are just window dressing for the first line. We heard it. We got it. Let's move on. I said this is a temptation to fall into this line of thinking because it's, I think, both the path of least resistance to approaching this week's scriptures, and it's a great way to miss out on a more fruitful, more meaningful reading of the text that's presented to us here in Scripture. Instead, I think we would do well to learn more about the context of these verses to parse out what it meant for the audience of Jews to whom Micah was prophesying, as well as what it means for us as contemporary readers who, as yet, are still waiting for Christ's second coming. So first, let's look at the place name to get a little context. The name Ephrathah originally referred to a clan related to Caleb, and you can read about that in the first book of Chronicles, uh, chapter 2. The clan in reference here would later settle in the district of Bethlehem, referenced in the opening lines of the book of Ruth, and uh, I think also in the first book of Samuel. As he uses it here, Micah connects this place with the origin of the dynasty of David, which is also discussed in Ruth and First Samuel. He's drawing a clear line from the king to the Messiah in making this reference. Later, the gospel authors, especially St. Matthew, will point to that as the prophecy of Christ's birth. But to be a little bit more true to the text, I think the prophet here isn't saying the Messiah is certainly going to be born there, but that he will come from the royal line of David. That's the more important takeaway from what he's trying to say. One of the big challenges of Micah is that the original Hebrew text is actually in a really bad state of preservation. It's one of the worst. The other one, the other really bad one, uh, I think, being Hosea. And as a result of that poor preservation, scholars over the years have had to make a lot of conjectures and assessments as much as they've had to draw strictly historical and accurate and verifiable conclusions about the text. But there might be scriptural reason to believe the claim about this Messiah from David's line reading in the first verse is actually true. Simply put, the original text probably read Bet Ephrata, or House of Ephrathah, and then Bethlehem, that term, would be an explanatory gloss 
added later on by whomever originally uh, compiled or edited the, edited the text. Ephrathah is generally associated with Bethlehem because Bethlehem was first was settled by the Ephrathah clan, which came from the tribe of Judah, following the conquest of the land of Canaan. So the key point here is that the origin of the line is in reference rather than the physical birthplace of the Messiah. Still, as St. Matthew writes in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 specifically, at the time of Christ's birth, it was also understood to be a reference to the place. So, of course, there's a lot to unpack here. Just one final note on the name. This is kind of a, a fun fact. The word Bethlehem means house of bread. I can't help but think that that's God sort of winking at us through the language of Scripture every time we celebrate the Mass and consume the bread of life. I just thought that was a neat little thing to, to think about. But I, I also think the overall structure and content of the book of Micah is useful to understand and getting a little bit more from the verses that we read this week. According to commentary by Philip J. King, generally speaking, Micah is known as a prophet of social justice. According to the opening verse of the book itself, he lived contemporaneously with Isaiah, but he would have seen the world from a completely different point of view. So whereas Isaiah is focused intensely on the real presence of God in the city of Jerusalem, Micah doesn't demonstrate any interest in that. Whereas Isaiah prophesied about the city, Micah spoke about division among the fields, himself having been from a small kind of obscure backwater village that was probably more concerned with the weather and agriculture cycles and market rates and all that than it would have been with the affairs of the state. And given that his father's name isn't recorded anywhere, we can probably infer that Micah came from the peasant class. So that background is prominent in his preaching as well. He uses blunt, unsophisticated language to rail against social sins, especially wherein wealthy capitalists are oppressing their peasant landholders and the priests and prophets are just as venal as the merchants and judges. Religious observance was in disrepair and Micah would have made, Micah did make a lot of comments about that from the point of view of somebody who isn't necessarily inside the city of Jerusalem. So we get this kind of dichotomous look at how these different prophets would have seen similar issues and get a comprehensive look at the messaging as a result, I think. The messages in the book of Micah alternate between prophecies of misfortune and prophecies of good fortune. There are four kind of identifiable sections. Those prophecies of misfortune followed by prophecies of good fortune. Uh, and we get that cycle repeated one time. So, of course, our verse from the fourth Sunday of Advent's first reading comes from one of the latter sections. It comes from one of the prophecies of good fortune. But understanding the concerns Micah had with the world he saw around him and taking into consideration the humble origins of the man himself and his passionate defense of those who were on the receiving end of social injustices, the inclusion of this hopeful verse, this reminder that the Lord is coming, also from apparently humble origins, but connected with the lineage of the king, that gave me a lot of pause. For me, it adds kindling to this little flame of hope that we've been slowly 
growing throughout the season of Advent as we light another candle each week. And it reminds me that amidst a world of challenges, world of difficulty, loss, uncertainty, loneliness, discouragement, amidst all of that, we still have something solid to hold on to that gives us hope for any season. So I think it's clear by now that this passage does more than just provide us a neat little scripture-based argument for faith in Christ, a simple apologetic in defense of justification of our beliefs. Instead, or I guess I should say in addition, it reminds us that we're still waiting in the same way that Micah's audience would have been waiting for the Messiah. It's at the announcement of an advent, a new coming that fires our hopes and sustains our expectations, just as it sustained the beliefs of the faithful in the Old Testament. Even now, it strengthens the meaning of our vigil as we await the coming of the Lord, and it gives us cause to carry on that vigil in joyful hope rather than in drudgery or boredom. So moving to the second reading here, which came from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. To me, this is the clearest of the three readings in this week's Liturgy of the Word in spelling out its place in the assessment I, I talked about at the at the top of the episode here. This is the this is the so what. Here we get the why of all of it, really. Why did Christ come? Why are we paying attention to it now? We see a direct theological explanation of Christ's role here, the role of the Messiah who came into history and dwelt among us. And that purpose is to replace sacrifices with the conduct of God's will on earth. That's as clear a statement of purpose as any I've ever heard. And I've worked a bunch of corporate jobs. I'm sure many of you listening have as well. Statements of purpose are everywhere. This one is by far the clearest I've heard. And yet, I, I think there's still a little bit more for us to understand here that adds a little bit of color to the readings. Very briefly, I think it's worth noting that the author of the epistle is actually unknown. There are traditional arguments made in favor of the belief that St. Paul wrote it, uh, first in Hebrew to the Hebrews, and then later it was translated by St. Luke into Greek. Those arguments are based mostly on the historical opinions, the acceptance of the authenticity of the of St. Paul's authorship by key thinkers in the early church. Examples include Origen, Clement, there are a bunch of others. There are also different arguments against St. Paul's authorship, such as differences in the style of the way references to the Old Testament are introduced in the language, different vocabulary than is typical for a lot of St. Paul's other letters. Whatever the case, though, the fact remains that authorship of the letter is unknown. It's inconclusive. And even more frustrating, or I guess at least frustrating to people whose job it is to understand these kinds of things, this letter is the only other one alongside the first letter of St. John that doesn't begin with some kind of greeting or some reference to the author or the audience. It just kind of dives right in. But nonetheless we can basically understand the letter to the Hebrews as a letter written to discuss theological issues for the purpose of warding off apostasy. 
In fact, it's likely that this epistle is actually a homily that somebody wrote out. The way that it's written, I think, suggests that it was a homily that was meant to be read rather than delivered orally. It doesn't lend itself to good oratory, I think. And accordingly, there's a lot of rich discussion of key concepts in the faith in the text of this letter. It makes sense as a homily, as a kind of instructive discourse on the faith. As for the text itself, as one might expect in a letter addressed to the Hebrews, it's steeped in references to the Old Testament. Right out of the gate in this passage, we see a direct quotation of Psalm 40, verse 6. The author draws a connection between the psalm and the words of the Son, Jesus, at the moment of his incarnation. Of course, it's not a coincidence that this is the reading selected for the fourth Sunday of Advent, where we see the nexus of the Old and New Testament. We see this continuation finally stitched up, and we're ready for for the nativity to be celebrated later this week. Then in the middle of the reading, in verse 8, we get this interesting list of a few different kinds of sacrifices. The terms here include sacrifice, offering, holocausts, sin offerings, and those terms are probably a reference to the four main kinds of offerings, these categories of offerings. And those categories are peace offerings, cereal offerings, and that's cereal spelled like the breakfast cereal, as in reference to some kind of grain and not in a series. Holocausts is the third, and the fourth main type is sin offerings, and that includes guilt offerings as referenced in the book of Leviticus chapter 5. So this verse that we see in, see those that list in in the letter to the Hebrews then ties all these things to the law. And it does that so it can set up in the next verse, verse 9, that the law had been annulled by the coming of Jesus Christ to do the Lord's will. Here Christ voluntarily offers himself as a replacement for all these offerings on our behalf. And so we see the purpose of Jesus coming is clear. It's to replace all these old kinds of offerings once and for all for the purpose of paying our ransom, in essence. And I think that really is the crux of the why we experience this joy. Why do we have this expectant hope as we approach the nativity of the Lord and the Christmas season? And that's why we start off the church calendar in the season of Advent, because it's this preparation, this this, this joyful hope that we're supposed to have that sets the tone for basically everything else that we believe as Christians. And it's this statement of purpose spelled out in the letter to the Hebrews that I think gives us clear an expression to that as you can find anywhere. The Lord is coming so that we don't have to keep making offerings. We can receive our payment we can become one with the Lord through the person of Jesus Christ once and for all. And in that way, there's a line of continuity drawn as far back as the beginnings of the faith. And it continues all the way through today. And we're right at the nexus of it. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons that 
we've been discussing joy and hope and and that excitement of expectation for the last several weeks. Th- this is it. This is this is the nexus. This is where we're supposed to be. And I think that's just that's just the most exciting, most thrilling thing to me. So moving on to the gospel reading, which comes from the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, verses 39 through 45. I once had a priest point out to me in college that if the Christian worldview is to mean anything, if we're to gain any sort of meaning out of our beliefs, then we have to understand that all of human history hinges on the free choice of a Hebrew girl 2,000 years ago. And the passage that we see in this week's gospel calls that fact to mind for me. And I invite you to keep that thought in mind as we continue the discussion here of this week's gospel passage and, and, and understand that Mary's choice to do the Lord's will, to, to submit to humble service, is really the defining moment for us. And just keep that in mind, I think, as we, as we continue the discussion. And, and keep it in your mind and heart throughout the rest of the week and throughout the Christmas season. And understand that that's, that's really what, where all of this meaning that we have in our lives from the faith comes from. So this week's gospel is just incredibly textually rich. I think at at the highest level, it shows us what a joyful response to the good news of the coming of the Lord looks like. As we see Elizabeth and her unborn child, her infant, filled with joy in the Holy Spirit at Mary's greeting. Even considering that fact, even considering the way that Elizabeth and her child were filled with the Spirit, just meditating on that, I think can give a person a lot to consider, and, and it can be a really great entry point into prayer, just being with that scene, being with their response to the presence of the Lord in in this scene of the visitation can be a, a, a great way to begin in prayer. If you, if you can't think of any other ways, I, I might suggest giving that a go to just give yourself something something to think about and in addition to that, I think there's quite a lot going on when we consider the placement of this reading in the context of the rest of the readings that we've heard throughout the season of Advent. This scene really represents a culmination of this dichotomous narrative, these parallel tracks of John the Baptist, or the Old Testament, and Jesus, or the New Testament. And the scene also caps off the subordination of the first, John, the Old Testament, to the second. Jesus, New Testament. This relationship between Jesus and John is symbolized in this passage when their mothers meet with one another, and it's a direct analog to the relationship between the sons. It's through these two women that we're introduced to the real, lived presence of the Lord who would come to dwell among us. These women are our entry point into the story, and that's just so important to keep in mind. So going into the text itself, the words themselves, uh, as we can expect from 
from Luke. It's an exceptionally rich experience. So first we see the the description with haste. And I want to just make a note about that expression. So Mary traveled into the hill country with haste. And, and of course, it's just an illustration of the way she was traveling. This is already a really interesting point of translation. So the original Greek uses the phrase metaspudes. And that can be translated with haste quickly. Or it can also be translated very thoughtfully. Of course, the, the context and grammatical construction of words in Greek give them meaning appropriate to whatever the passage is that they're in. But I can't help but point out that the root word for haste here, spudes, that word has a number of meanings associated with it. And I'm just going to list a few of them that I was able to find in my lexicon Eagerness, zeal, earnestness, busyness, anxiousness, weightiness, seriousness. And that's as in speaking about or, or treating topics seriously. Clearly, this term is meant to convey more than just describing the speed with which Mary would have been traveling. This is a phrase that's loaded with freight. And given that the previous section of Luke's gospel, the passage just before this beginning, I think in verse 26, that verse or that section tells us about the annunciation in which Mary had this supernatural encounter with the angel Gabriel and was told that she would conceive and bear a son. I like to think that this translation of very thoughtfully, she traveled very thoughtfully you know, understanding the, the 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 weightiness, the the zeal, the the freight that that term carries with it. I, I like to think that translation makes perfect sense. You know, Mary's mind must have been just going a mile a minute, thinking about everything that she had just experienced with this encounter with the angel Gabriel, and at the same time thinking about everything that she would experience, you know, bearing a son going through the process of pregnancy, bringing a human life into the world. What is she going to experience because of her choice to serve the Lord? What is that going to mean for her? What is it going to mean for her family? What's it going to mean for her son? And probably, I don't know how she would have avoided thinking about what it means for the rest of the world. So, in haste or not, she most certainly would have been traveling very thoughtfully and would have been carrying a lot more with her than I think can can be conveyed. And, and I, I just think that's the coolest thing that, that Luke uses this, this phrase, this metaspudes, and that can be a source of some, of, of some meditation for us, I think, about what Mary's state of mind and experience must have been like. So just a final note here. This passage ties together everything we've been looking at the last few weeks with the Messianic story. It ties together the promises told in the Old Testament with the promises that will be fulfilled in the New. And it uses specific terms to make that connection. So for example, we see blessed are you. That phrase, blessed are you, has echoes in Deborah's praises of Jael in the book of Judges. And it also has parallels in the way that people expressed acclaim of Judith in her eponymous book. When we see the reference to the baby leaping in Elizabeth's womb, this expression of joy 
in her unborn child. We think about Rebecca's children in the book of Genesis, or maybe we think about David dancing before the Ark of the Covenant in the second book of Samuel. In the spirit of the social justice prophet, Micah, who we heard from in the first reading, we might also think about the messianic leap of joy among the poor mentioned in Isaiah chapter 35 or Psalm 114. And we might think about what that would look like in today's world in the analogs, whatever analog you can, you can think of, fill in the blank. But whatever the case, the visitation scene given to us right before Christmas, actually going backward in Luke's narrative to, to the first chapter from, from the third that we've been hearing from the last couple of weeks. This scene reminds us of the boundless joy that we are offered by the Lord. And that joy which has been made accessible to us by Mary's free choice to carry out the Lord's will in bearing a son. And in so doing, it reminds us that we have our own choices to make. As we live out our lives, we're faced with the choice of how we're supposed to respond to the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. And I think we're very fortunate because we need look no further than this scene for an example of how to respond to that good news. We ought to leap with joy in our hearts and live as people who know that they're deeply, deeply loved. Just some concluding thoughts here. God isn't interested in sacrifice so much as he is interested in obedience. In this day and age, the word obedience is like an instant red flag. It's an object for uh, it's an object of disdain for the modern American sensibility. A, a world driven by profit and incentive stands to gain a lot more from marketing individuality indulgence, personal choice. It, it, it stands to, to gain a lot by marketing those things, much more than it does than by trying to promote self-discipline, selflessness. We're, we're often pressured to participate in this, in a culture of consumption where the only orders we have to follow are the ones we set for ourselves. Of course, such a culture is one that's reliant on pride. And it's one that's antithetical to the concept of obedience. But counterintuitively, at least compared with modern American standards, such a culture is actually antithetical to true freedom as well. The freedom that's offered to us if we let go of our material temporal attachments and give ourselves over to the will of God, just as Jesus did when he came to live among us, just as Mary did when she accepted the responsibility of bringing Jesus Christ into the world. This, this surrender, this giving over of the self, really, it, that's, it's the only path to, to true liberty, to true freedom, at least if the scriptures are to be believed. We're faced with a challenge in that we're responsible for staying true to our consciences, our, our, our genuine, honest, deep down, no kidding consciences, consciences. And at the same time, we're called to submit to God's will and become obedient. But this isn't actually a contradiction. The, the, the thing is that keeping those two things misaligned, our, our, our consciences and God's will, is just pride. 
It's simple pride getting in the way. St. Augustine said that pride is the root of all sins. You take a moment to consider sins that you might personally be struggling with in, in your own life and, and consider that, that that sin is connected back to the choice, ultimately to put one's own will in front of God's, to, to demand that God exceed and that our will be done rather than his. As we follow that pride, we become less connected with God's will, but we also become slaves to, to our own will, slaves to our own sin. And if we continue to live our life with this order of priority, when we become slaves to that sin, we're, we're incapable of freeing ourselves. And we paint ourselves into a corner because at a certain point, we're no longer able to make the choice to live as God intended for us to do. We enter a door that's locked from the inside. We turn down the invitation. We reject it because we think whatever we have going on is somehow more important than oneness with the Lord. But understanding that that's pretty bleak. But I think that that concept, that, that notion that we have free choice, we have opportunity, but we also have this weighty responsibility, I think that makes all this joy, all this hope, all this expectation we've been talking about these last few weeks of Advent, I think this is what makes all of that more meaningful, more real to us today. I think no matter how often one studies or reads scripture, I think it can be easy to kind of make it into an abstract thing. And, and as I mentioned last week, everyone feels benevolent when nothing happens to be annoying him, as C.S. Lewis pointed out. I think it is very easy to feel connected with scripture when you're just actually reading it. And, and that's a good thing. You, know, it, you should feel some kind of connection to the scriptures if you, if you open your heart and, and prepare to, to, to take in the word and interact with it in some way. But I, 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 I can't think of any better way to head into the Christmas season than to be filled with this joyful hope in our own real lives, separate from the abstractions we might be drawing when we think of these old stories and these connections back to people thousands of years ago. And we, we can see it manifest in ourselves in real time in the immediate world that we live in. And we can live with this, this joyful hope, this joyful expectation of the coming of the Lord. And I think that's a fundamental difference wherein we, we put our pride away, we stop trying to subjugate everything around us to our will, and instead we let go, we surrender, we accept God's invitation to be obedient, to carry out his will on earth, and in doing so, we begin to experience true freedom. We're free from our sins because they've been paid for, and we have to accept that invitation. That's the weighty responsibility that we have. And rather than being worried or afraid of the implications of that statement, I think the last few weeks of Advent and especially this week's readings have been telling us that we can feel free to understand that responsibility with hope and with joy. I hope you and your family have a wonderful Christmas. 
thanks for joining us for this this final episode of the aftermath we'll be taking a break here i think there's plenty going on for christmas itself so we won't be doing a christmas episode and we'll be picking up again at the start of the calendar year 2022 as we head into the extended christmas season and get into the rest of the year I want to thank you all for, for joining me for this episode and for any previous episodes. And I want to express gratitude for your, your continued participation, your continued listening. And, and I hope that this in some small way adds value to your life, whether it be in the midst of Christmas season or, or whenever you happen to pick it up. I appreciate your listening. And until next time, God bless. God bless.